from the book of John. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brent. Well, we are uh, now in Lent, which is this uh, period of 40 days that leads right up to Easter. And historically, the church takes Lent as a season to focus on things like prayer or repentance or kind of just doing a spiritual uh, audit of yourself. And so for the season of Epiphany, which was the season, right, we just got out of, um, we've been looking at these questions that Jesus asks throughout the Gospels because uh, these questions in many ways reveal Jesus to us. And so we've been looking at questions like, who do you say I am? And why do you call me good? Or um, do you understand what I've done for you? Questions like that to reveal Jesus to us. But Lent really is a season that's designed to reveal us to us. It's a season where we think about ourselves and think about our need for grace and things like that. And so we're, we're still going to look at these questions that Jesus asks, only the questions we're now we're pivoting to questions that are really designed to get us to discover ourselves questions that are designed to kind of expose us to us. And no question, I think, is more uh, personal or more aimed directly at the human heart than the question that we have this morning, which you see in verse uh, 38, where Jesus asks, what are you seeking? Which the NIV translation puts it a little bit more um, bluntly. The, the NIV just says, what do you want? This is, a, this is a little story that takes place very early on in the public ministry of Jesus. I mean, this is John chapter 1, so we're early on. And the story is, is that John the Baptist is this guy that's going around and he's talking about the Christ, that there is somebody that's going to come after him who's actually uh, above him and bigger than him and better than him. He says, there's, there's one who's coming who's so uh, over the top unworthy of, 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 of me. He's just, he's so glorious and so wonderful. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. And uh, one day, as you see in um, verse 35, John's hanging out with two of his disciples and Jesus walks by and John's like, that's him. That's the guy I've been talking about. Behold, the Lamb of God. And his two disciples that are with him leave him and start following after Jesus like they, like they switch teams right on the spot. They transfer their church membership right then and there, and they start following Jesus, and Jesus turns to them and asks them this question, what are you seeking? What do you want? Now, when you first read it, it can, it can kind of sound like he's being rude, like he's annoyed, like, um, 
what do you want? Can't you see I'm busy here? Like, like get, get, get away from me. And, um, but that's not what's going on. This question is so profound. Just to think about what do you want? This question, he's, he's forcing the disciples and therefore he's forcing us to do business with our desires. To do business with your desires. And there's three really important things that Jesus is showing us about our desires in this passage that I want to show you. He's going to show us first that desires are inescapable. Secondly, that desires are inscrutable. And then third, that desires are ensnarable, which is a made-up word, but it'll work. Trust me. Um, Desires are inescapable, inscrutable, ensnarable. First, what do I mean that desires are inescapable? Think about that question, what are you seeking? Uh, Jesus assumes that they are seeking something. He assumes that human beings are seeking things. He doesn't say, why are you seeking or, or why do you want? He's not surprised that they want. The way that he understands human beings is that human beings are driven by desires, which is, I think, different from how most human beings understand ourselves. We don't understand ourselves as desirers. We, we tend to believe about ourselves that what we are fundamentally is that we are thinkers. You might remember the name Rene Descartes. Uh, this was a, f- a French philosopher that you probably read in your intro to philosophy class or philosophy 101. This was the guy that famously coined the phrase, I think, therefore I am. He said, you know, the, the, what it means, the core of what it means for me to be a thing is that I'm a thinking thing. That's how I know that I exist. That's how I know I am is because I think. And you think, okay, this is just nerdy, obscure, old school, like French philosophy. It's not. This is how modern people tend to understand ourselves as well. I just recently watched uh, a clip of uh, a stand-up comedian, Pete Holmes, who in one of his little stand-up bits described (laughs) a human body, human bodies as meat puppets, which is a hilarious and really vivid way to describe a human being. But what he means is the core of what you are is that you're a brain, and your brain happens to control this vehicle, this meat puppet that just carries your brain around from room to room to room. Another author um, said that, that we like to conceive of ourselves as brains on a stick. Now, here's why this matters. Here's why, here's why this is important. Back in 2008, the FDA rolled out this um, controversial policy that said that every fast food restaurant was required to display the amount of calories in each of their menu items. It was part of this nationwide initiative to cut back on obesity and uh, to, to reduce uh, healthcare costs. And so the idea was if consumers knew how unhealthy the food was, it would lead them to make different decisions, make healthier decisions. The assumption was is that human beings are brains on a stick. If they just have the data, if they just have the right information, we will make good decisions. And not surprisingly, what they found is after a year of research, all the data came in and said that people actually ate worse they, they consumed more calories after knowing how many calories are in the thing. It, okay, so why is that? Why, why did we decide to eat worse? You can know that a Five Guys 
double cheeseburger with bacon and a bag of french fries is going to run around 2,000 calories. You can know that, but if you've had a hard day at work and your blood sugar is dropping and it's right there, you're going to eat it. You know why? It's because you're not just a brain on a stick. You are a desirer. You are a craver. That's what Jesus is assuming, is that human beings are not necessarily driven by thoughts. Human beings are driven by desires. James K.A. Smith put it like this. It's not so much that you are what you think. He says you are what you love. You are inescapably and intrinsically something that loves, something that desires, something that seeks. And this is really important, especially for this moment, because here we are in a moment where you're sitting there patiently, quietly, taking notes, listening to somebody spray words and information on you. And you can sit there and you can take this up. You can, you can consume this information. You can go home. You can download and listen to all the Tim Keller and John Piper or whoever sermons you want to download and listen to. You can devour every book there is on God and on theology. You can you can drink up all of the knowledge, and it doesn't necessarily touch what you love. You can consume all the stuff, all the information, and you can still be anxious, controlling, arrogant, vindictive, angry. It, it, it doesn't necessarily touch your desires, which is, I think, really important for us to recognize, especially in Presbyterian circles. And you just happen to find yourself in a Presbyterian church this morning. But Presbyterians, deep down, we really do believe that information leads to transformation. So if you have a problem, our prescription is, read this book. Come to us with an issue. Here's an article you need to read. Here's a podcast to listen to. It's not that those things are bad. All those things are really important. If I didn't think information mattered, I would not be talking right now. That matters. But it's really easy to think that our problem is an information problem. And if we just get more information, or if we just get the right information, then we'll be fixed, and then we'll be happy, and then we'll be organized. But Jesus is showing us, even by the way he asks this question, is that you're not necessarily fundamentally a thinking thing. You're a seeking thing. You cannot not want. Desires are inescapable. So you take that question and you say, okay, Jesus is throwing out this question. He's assuming I'm a desirer, I'm a lover, I'm a craver. Cool. So when you try to answer that question, what do you want what are you seeking? You begin to realize, okay, that's a harder question to answer because our wants are complex. Our desires are convoluted. This is what I mean by the second idea, that, that desires are inscrutable. This reminds me of um, this famous scene in the movie The Notebook, which is your favorite movie and mine. Uh, Ryan Gosling, <laughs> Rachel McAdams. And, I, and, and so they have this conversation where the Ryan Gosling character says this. Will you do something for me, please? Just picture your life for me. 30 years from now, 40 years from now, what's it look like? If it's with him, go, go. 
I lost you once. I think I can do it again. If I thought that's what you really wanted, but don't you take the easy way out. And she says, what easy way? There is no easy way. No matter what I do, somebody gets hurt. And he says, would you stop thinking about what everyone wants? Stop thinking about what I want, what he wants, what your parents want. What do you want? What do you want? And she says, it's not that simple. He says, what do you want? What do you want? She says, I have to go now. (laughs) And scene. (laughs) Thank you. Two for two. I got applause at the first, the first one as well. I did not realize. Somebody said, hey, if this preaching thing doesn't work out, I know, I know where you can go. <laughs> I feel like um, we should just close in prayer at that point. I don't know how you recover. But what is she saying? She's saying, okay, you're asking me what I want, but she says it's not that simple. And the reason why she's right is because everybody has uh, competing desires inside of them. And, and this, really, this collides with our current cultural moment because our current cultural moment, all the messaging is what you desire is the, the core part that is you and that should be listened to, that should be obeyed at all cost. Follow your heart. If it feels right, do it. And, and we hear this messaging and we resonate with it and we say, yes, that feels liberating. It feels right because if I feel something that I want to do, I shouldn't feel shackled by what you want me to do or what your ideas for my life are. I, I should be free to do what I want to do. The problem with that is that it's incredibly naive and it's incredibly reductionistic because the reality is, is that you're you have competing wants in your own heart. Which heart do you listen to? Your heart is at odds with itself. I mean, just we'll take me for an example. Do I want to be healthy and in shape? Or do I want to eat Aldo's and Bluebell Bluebell every single night? Yes. The answer is yes. And so which one do I listen to? Which, which want do I prioritize? Which desire do I say, that's the true me? That's the real me? Do I want to read more? Or do I want to scroll through Instagram reels? Yes. Do I want eight hours of sleep a night? Or do I want to watch the next episode of The Office? Yes. Which one do you listen to? There's this uh, movie that came out maybe 40-plus years ago. It's this artsy movie by this Russian filmmaker called, called The Stalker. And uh, the whole two and a half hours of this movie are on YouTube. You can watch it. I tried to watch it years ago and couldn't get through it. I don't think I'm sophisticated enough. I missed it. I'm not cool enough. I couldn't get into it. But I, but I read a synopsis of the story. And the story is that there's three characters, the professor, writer, and stalker. And stalker is the one who's leading these guys on this journey. And he's taking them to this place called the zone. And he promises them, when you get to the zone, there's a place in the zone called the room. And when you step into the room, your deepest desires come true. 
what you want actually comes into existence. It's kind of like the, the mirror of Erised in Harry Potter, only you don't just see what you want, you actually get it, you actually get what you want. So the movie unfolds and they, they finally arrive at this place called The Zone, and here's what Stalker says. He says, we are now at the very threshold of the room. This is the most important moment of your life. Your innermost wish will be made true here. This is the place where you can have what you want. Now, who wants to go first? Who wants to step into the room? And you would assume that these two guys are just going to push each other out of the way, jockeying to get there first, but they don't. They hesitate. And this, this disturbing epiphany creeps over them where they begin to realize, what if I step into that room and I get what I want only to discover it's not what I wanted? What if you don't want the thing that you want? Now, that's a very profound question. And there are countless stories of how this, this movie has actually played out in real life. In fact, let me just give you one. Maybe the most famous example of this that you're probably familiar with is the um, famous interview that Tom Brady gave on uh, 20, 20 years ago. You know, Patriots quarterback, by the time he was 30 years old, he had three Super Bowl rings, and he's being interviewed in this uh, famous clip on 2020, and here's what he says. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. And me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. And the interviewer asks him, well, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, what's he saying? He's saying, the thing that I thought that I wanted was the success and the Super Bowl rings and the money and the acclaim and all, all of that. And then I got it, and it wasn't what I wanted. I thought it was what I wanted. It's not what I wanted. Jim Carrey has a very um, similar quote along these lines where he says, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Here's somebody who is rich and famous and has done everything he's ever dreamed of, and he's saying, I got what I wanted, and it's not the answer. I discovered that the thing that I wanted wasn't what I really wanted. So how do you explain that? How do you explain this inner madness inside of every single one of us that wants things that when we get, we don't want? The Bible's explanation for that is that our desires are disordered. Our, our wants are all out of whack. All of our desires and our cravings are, are, are like this pretzeled up uh, bird's nest of contradictions where we want what we don't want and we don't want what we do want and then we get the thing that we want only to discover it wasn't what we really wanted. The Old Testament prophet uh, Jeremiah puts it like this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's like trying to see to the bottom of a, of a brown, murky, muddy lake. You can't see to the bottom of it. Our desires are inscrutable. You try to answer that question, what do I really want? It's frustrating. Which, okay, raises the question, well, then what do we do? Why is he even asking this question in the first place if you can't really answer it? 
Does that mean we just throw up our hands and say, hey, I'm going to want what I'm going to want, and we'll just deal? Well, no. Um, that leads us to this third thing. Jesus also shows us that uh, desires are ensnarable. And what I mean by that is he's showing us that our desires can be ensnared. They can be captured in the best of ways. You can encounter something with such tremendous force, something that is so beautiful that your very desires actually get restructured. You remember the movie uh, Ratatouille? The, um, the old, mean, grumpy food critic? He's just a grouch through the whole thing. And then he finally encounters beauty in the form of this amazing, delicious ratatouille. And you, you can see the ice melt off of his soul in the moment. You can see him transform on the spot. His desires are getting restructured because he actually encountered something beautiful. That's what Jesus is after in the story. That's what he's after. That's why he doesn't ask, what do you think? What do you believe? He asks, what do you want? Because that's what he's after. He's after our hearts, our longings, our loves, our cravings. What are you seeking? So it's interesting, when he asks that question to these two guys, they don't really give a direct answer. You see their response in verse 38. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Which is a way of saying, can we hang out at your place today? Like, what, where, where, where do you live? Where you, can we hang out with you? And Jesus says, come and see. Like, Come on, let's do it. And so it says that they spend, uh, in verse 38, it says that they spend the rest of the day hanging out with him. And look what happens. Look at verse 41. Andrew, who's one of these guys that left John the Baptist and he's hanging around Jesus for the day, look, look at what it says. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus something has radically changed in Andrew. Something has happened to him. He went from, okay, I feel intrigued by Jesus. I'm curious. There's a lot of hype about him. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll go check him out to see what the deal is and see maybe if he has something to offer me. And after just spending one day in Jesus' presence, something has been radically altered where he is now running out, gathering other people, saying, we found the Christ. We found the one in whom makes the whole world make sense. In fact, look at how verse 42 begins. He's literally bringing people to Jesus. This is what anybody does when your heart has been captured with something that you love. You read a good book, you instantly bother everybody that they have to stop everything they're doing right now and read this book. It's so good, you gotta read it. You come across this podcast you're into or a new show on Netflix you're obsessed with, you become... That show's primary promoter. You have to check this out. You have to, this is just what we do. We become evangelists to the thing that has captured our heart. That's what's happened with Andrew. Something has so captured his heart, has so gripped his imagination, that his whole life has been changed from this point on. Andrew is going to end up dying because of this moment. Years later down the road, his whole trajectory in life has changed because he has been so captured with Jesus. And the reason why is because the Bible says the way that our hearts were designed is that they were designed to know and to love Jesus. And they were designed 
to be known and to be loved by Jesus, that he is the one that is actually behind and beyond all the other things that we are craving. All of our desires find their ultimate terminus in him. He's the one that we are actually seeking. That's why at this church, we keep coming back to him week after week after week after week. The whole point of what we're doing here, the whole aim of this whole worship service is for you to behold the beauty of who Jesus is. In many ways, what we're doing is just, is just trying to flesh out what John the Baptist said in verse 36 when he says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold means look at, fix your eyes upon, check that out. Now, it's really fascinating that, Andrew, or that John the Baptist uses this language of referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God because lambs were primarily associated with temple sacrifices, You would bring a lamb to the temple and they would be slaughtered on the altar as a way to atone for your sin. And so somehow, mysteriously, John knew there's something about this guy where he's going to be the one that ultimately deals with our sin. He's going to be the one that in some ways gives his very being away for the people that he loves in order to heal them, in order to forgive them in order to redeem them. The question I want to leave you with is this. What has loved you like that? Who has loved you to that degree that they would sacrifice everything for you? That they would give up their life, their oxygen, their breath, their clothing, their reputation, their comfort, everything for you. Your job hasn't done that. Your children haven't done that. Your bank account hasn't done that. Jesus is the only one who is willing to give up everything out of love for you, which tells you how Jesus would answer his own question. You know, if you were to turn the tables and throw it back on Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, what are you seeking? What do you want? The cross tells you the answer. The cross tells you that the answer is you and it's me. The cross tells you that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was willing to be slaughtered on the altar of the cross to heal you, to redeem you, to forgive you, to bring you to himself. When you know that you are desired like that, wanted like that, treasured like that, that's when you encounter beauty. That's when you encounter a love that, that is otherworldly, and that's what starts to restructure and recalibrate your heart, where he now starts to become the thing that you desire. Your heart starts to get realigned in the way that it was actually designed. The way that that happens is through an encounter with beauty. And so the invitation for you this morning is really just what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I do pray that you give us eyes to see. Help us to behold the beauty that is Jesus. This one whom your very scriptures say there is no beauty about him to behold. That when we look upon him, we see a poor beggar, 
who died a gruesome, bloody, weak, suffering death. And I pray that you would give us the imagination and the eyes of faith to see beyond the horror and the ugliness of it all, to see the true beauty of it, to see a God who is willing to give away his greatness, to see a God who's willing to give away his comfort in his very life for those whom he loves. Help us to see the mystery, the beauty, and the wonder of the gospel of grace so that our hearts indeed might be recalibrated, restructured. We pray all this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.